The first reading is from the book of Job. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I led the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward part or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds or who can tilt the water skins, water skins of the heaven when the dust runs into a mass and the clouds cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? The word of the Lord. Please join me in the psalm. We will read responsibly by the half verse. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You wrap, you wrap yourself with a light as with a cloak. You lay the beams of your chambers in the waters above. You make the winds your messengers. You have set the earth upon its foundations. You covered it with the deep, as with a mantle. And you, at your rebuke they fled. They went up into the hills and down to the valleys beneath. You set the limits that they should not pass. O Lord, how manifold are your works. Reading from Hebrews. Every high priest chosen from among the mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. Because of this, he must offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as those for, for the people. He does not presume to take this honor but only takes it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify him, himself as becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Mesechesic. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Machesnik. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. And whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. I'll give you just a couple of words of preamble today. Um, my, my mentoring rector told me... Uh, he had some really great stock phrases, and you'll probably realize this went through first one. He said, you know, every preacher really only has one sermon. <laughs> it's the one that they sort of stumble toward every time they get up in front. So if this sounds similar to, to what I've been talking about for the last three years, it's because I'm trying to find my one. I just want to warn you. Um, the other is this quote by Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day, you know, um, Catholic Worker Movement. She said... Love is a harsh and terrible thing, but it is the only way. A harsh and terrible thing, but it is the only way. So I'm fumbling, I want you to know, with this passage from Job. Uh, again, the lectionary presumes we've read it. And just to catch you up, in the first two chapters, we hear that Job is the most righteous man on earth, he loses everything, not just his cattle and his commodities, but he loses his ten children, and then his flesh itself is sort of tormented. And he spends the rest of the book conversing with three friends who ultimately say, Job, you or your kids must have done something wrong to deserve what's happened, because after all, you get what you pay for. Or... Maybe you did something in ignorance, or maybe your kids did. I mean, suffering comes from some reason. And Job resists that, the whole book. And because of the first two chapters, well, we know Job actually didn't do anything to deserve what he gets. And uh, he spends a number of chapters sort of talking about the injustice of the world. 
and particularly the injustice of God. How is it that Job, who knows his own innocence, has been tormented for something he didn't do? And then in chapters 37 out of 42, God shows up to answer Job. <laughs> now, in general, um, we read this book as sort of like Job is talking about the problem of evil in the world. That is, why is it that bad things happen to good people? And here is God sort of answering. And um, I suppose there are a number of ways uh, we could read God's response. Um, one way is, you know, you read this sort of Job, where were you when I laid the world? And, and the, the phrase that I grew up with as a kid is, who are human beings to question God? We don't know enough. We're not powerful enough. So how can we question someone who is so much greater than us? You know, when things don't seem to fit or when suffering seems wrong, it's because we just don't know enough. The reason I don't like that perspective is because uh, God ends up telling Job that later in the book that all of his questions were just fine. And after all, um, when I stand on the Episcopal leg of reason, if God is absolutely as great as we say God is, then our questions really shouldn't be threatening at all to God, should they? I mean, if God really is all-powerful, then me wondering and doubting, surely God can handle that. So I want to resist the traditional interpretation that ultimately we're too insufficient to wonder or doubt. A second thought, I suppose, you know, God seems to say, I've laid the foundations of the world and I have this really great perspective that you don't have. So another one that I grew up with is the idea that, well, everything happens for a reason. We just can't seem to see it. You've probably heard this before, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes I think that's easier to believe in others unless it's just sort of senseless tragedy that happens. Um, I can't actually imagine that it's true that everything happens for a reason. Um, thinking about what happens to adults is one thing, or even natural disasters, I think we can almost explain away. But thinking about particularly the suffering of innocence, it's really hard to find any reason in that. It seems actually really capricious that God would accomplish some higher purpose by intentionally inflicting suffering on other people. You know, there was a stock phrase, I, I hope you've not heard it before, um, but when someone lost a child a long, long time ago, often the response was, God wanted your child to be a rose in the garden of heaven. Has anybody heard that before? It's sickening, isn't it? Sickening. Now, I think our faith teaches us not that everything happens for a reason, but that in the middle of tragedy, God is able to work even tragedy toward our good. It doesn't mean God will, and it doesn't mean God perpetrated it. 
Our promise of faith is that God is capable of turning tragedy toward our good. And the word for that is redemption. God is able to redeem even the worst of things. Doesn't mean God will. And there's a fine line between redemption and orchestration, between God planning things out and things happening and God bending them to the good of the world. I suppose there's another option here in Job. God sort of says, you know, there's not just you on the earth. There's lions and there's ravens. We skipped the, this part in the reading, but um, God goes on to say to Job, consider how stupid the ostrich is. <laughs> the ostrich is the wildest and dumbest of animals, and God takes care of the ostrich. This is, this is one of the readings that you miss. Um, it's in there if you continue to read uh, chapter 37, it's an interesting response that perhaps God is saying sometimes we overthink how important we are in the world when in fact we're not the only living thing that God cares about. God cares about, well, all the other animals and God cares about the planet itself. So sometimes maybe we misunderstand what God has in mind. Sometimes we think it's all about whether we suffer or we're uncomfortable, when in fact really God is about preserving the world. Seems like maybe that's a helpful, helpful way to think. The phrase that I just really can't get my head around, and I've been trying to do this, uh, not just this week, but for a long, long time, is that God answers Job out of the whirlwind. When God shows up to respond to Job, God doesn't show up in a comfortable chair with a nice carpet underfoot and proper lighting. God shows up in a hurricane. God shows up in an earthquake. God shows up in precisely the middle of the chaotic forces that ultimately took everything from Job that he had. And God's response is, I don't know if I'm going to get this right. I, I don't think I am. But it seems like God is sort of saying something about the world itself really might be different than we often think about. God has created a world in which, well, there are predators, there are lions who eat things, and there are ravens who eat things. And I, I hope you'll forgive me for this, because again, I think it may be wrong, but I almost think God is sort of saying something like, the Eden of our minds, in which everything is calm and peaceful, and everything has its own boundaries, might be ideal, but it never was. God created saber-toothed tigers, and they didn't eat melons. <laughs> they ate other animals. I wonder if God is sort of saying here, or hinting at the fact that maybe God is not as afraid of suffering as we are. And it makes me think that the psalm actually might be wrong a little bit this morning. God has set the world on pillars that will not be moved. Well, uh, 
maybe not in Texas, but um, I lived in San Diego, and let me tell you, the pillars of the earth quake sometimes to the magnitude of 7.6. God has set the waters in boundaries that are fixed. Well, about a year ago, those boundaries rose about 13 and a half feet in my backyard. Now, I'm not sure things are always fixed. <laughs> and then there's this interesting bit, isn't there, about Jesus, the great high priest, who is perfected by suffering. Now, that's a strange thing. He's perfected by suffering. It takes us, I think, to the gospel. Here, two of the disciples ask Jesus how they can be greatest in God's family, James and John. And you know, the other disciples are mad at them for asking because, quite honestly, they wanted to be the greatest. And James and John asked first. <laughs> they asked the question the other ten were afraid of. How do we get to be the best? How do we get to sit at your right hand and left hand as if God just sort of sits around? Isn't that an interesting thought? They've got in mind, again, this, this incredible idea of hierarchy that in God's family, some members are more important than others. In fact, they've got in mind this great pyramid scheme in the sky, and they want to sit to the right and the left. And of course, they don't really get that Jesus is not going to throw out the Roman Empire and be the new Caesar. They don't get that. And Jesus' response is really kind of interesting, right? First he says, can you be baptized with the baptism I've been baptized with? And can you drink the cup I've drank? And then he says, if you want to be the greatest, you get to be the servant of all. Which is an interesting thought, right? In my head it means, aha, what he's saying is, if I really want to be number two in the kingdom of heaven, I have to serve the most people. So it's this... Um, it's really this false way of serving other people. I do it so I can be more important. I will treat you like you're important so that I can become more important. But the interior logic of that doesn't really make sense, does it? I don't actually love you, but I'm going to act like I do so that I can be more important after I die. Sadly, I probably do often think that way. <laughs> Sadly, I often do. <sighs> Sadly, I often think that if I'm patient with people I don't really care about, it'll God, make God happier. And I miss the whole reason I was supposed to do that. This is Mark. And five chapters ago, Mark talks about this guy. If you've been to church for more than six months in your life, you've heard this story. Mark talks about this guy who's paralyzed and he's on a mat. And his friends bring him to Jesus. And he, they can't get in there because there's too many people crowding a house. So if you know the story, they get on the house and they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus says, interestingly enough, in Mark... Your sins are forgiven. Great is your faith. Of course, we don't know that the guy on the mat had any faith at all. He's paralyzed, and his friends bring him to Jesus. 
And because he can't even get off his own mat, the whole way there he could have been saying, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, just put me down. And his friends don't listen. And possibly kicking and screaming, they bring him to Jesus, and their faith heals him. I wonder if that's what it means to be the servant of all that Jesus is talking about. A number of years ago, I'm going to show you how culturally irrelevant I am. <laughs> this is like 25 years ago. This movie came out that you may or may not have seen. Now, I'm not recommending the movie per se, but I remember it well. There was this movie called The Matrix with Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves. And... Um, you know, it's sort of, the, the movie sort of says we live in this blind illusion and um, Keanu Reeves gets this sort of uh, short experience that the world is really not quite as it seemed. And um, Lawrence Fishburne sort of after this short experience says, hey, this is mostly an illusion you're living in uh, and you've seen it and now you've got two choices. I'm going to give you two pills. <laughs> if you take, I, I'm going to get this wrong. If you take the red pill, you'll wake up in the morning and everything will be just like it was. You'll be fine. You'll be working this nine-to-five job where, you know, you get up and it's important. But if you take the blue pill, everything will be different. You'll see through everything you live. Has anybody seen this movie, by the way? He takes the blue pill, right? And everything's different. And, of course, he ends up being the one who ends the illusion. It's kind of a... It's actually a thinly veiled allegory for Buddhism. Um, I wonder, though, a little bit, if Jesus isn't saying something like the two pills today. I wonder if he isn't saying to James and John and the rest of the disciples and to us when he says this bit about drinking his cup, if we can choose to keep things the same when we approach faith and say, yep, we get what we deserve, and it's all about being important and earning our way to the top. That's the red pill. Or, I wonder if Jesus isn't saying, the gospel really invites us to swallow the blue pill, in which <laughs> we not only drink the wine, but frankly, there are dregs in the cup. And not only are we baptized with, well, nice clean water out of a beautiful font, but like Jesus himself, we're shoved under some 65 degree water in the Jordan River. I've been there, it's not really that clean. <laughs> it's about as brown as the pews in front of you. Oh, and Jesus couldn't swim. So that's kind of a scary thing. And what is it like to drink from that cup? Well, I suppose... suppose drinking from that cup has this reality that actually God's maybe not as afraid of suffering as we are. That loving other people is often a harsh and terrible thing. But it is the only way. I don't know about you this doesn't happen to me often, but I've had a few relationships <laughs> that have been characterized by whirlwinds. 
I mean, I've found myself in the middle of a cyclone before where people I love were consumed by chaos. And it wasn't glorious loving them. It was a harsh and terrible thing. But it was the only way. It was the only way. And that's been true for people that I know and actually, well, people I don't know. The difference between the two, of course, is the people I know I have to see over and over again. <laughs> I have to see them at work or at home or at family gatherings. Now, the people I don't know, I just see them on TV or I see them in the street. It's not such a harsh and terrible thing uh, loving somebody who is well, a socialist. Because <laughs> I don't actually have to know them. I can just sort of hate them for thinking differently than I do. But when it's somebody that I'm related to or I work with, and doggone it, <laughs> no matter how patient I am with them, they just don't seem to get it. And I'm right, by the way. You know, they're wrong and I'm right. And that's very clear. I just don't want to make sure I'm not mincing my words here. I just can't figure out why God's testing my faith that way. Sometimes I can't figure out how it is I drag them to this greater love of God, even if I have to do it kicking and streaming. They just won't be drugged there. Maybe you've never had that experience. I don't know. <sighs> Love is a harsh and terrible thing sometimes, isn't it? But it is the only way. And there were these moments, I think, when we wake up in the middle of the whirlwind, and this, I think, is the interesting thing. God's not outside causing it. God is in the middle of it with us. And interestingly enough, God's not just worried about us. God's worried about people that, golly, sometimes seem wild, like lions and ravens. God seems also concerned about people who could be predators and dangerous for us. People who have wildly different ideals and resist being loved. It seems like seems like that's the pill God invites us to swallow and the cup that God invites us to drink and the baptism we're invited to be baptized with. See, I think in the end of the day, maybe the image is not this triangle at which we're invited to sit at the top of, but this game we used to play called blob tag. I don't know if you've ever played blob tag. The person who's it runs around trying to tag other people, and if they get you, then you hold hands, and the both of you are it. So if I tagged Myra, we'd have to hold hands and chase everybody else in the room, and you realize I would really slow her down. But um, if we got over to Martha, she'd speed us up, and then there'd be the three of us chasing everybody else, and we finally got over to Chris, and there'd be four. And at the end of the day, we got everybody but Morella. We'd be this huge line of people that can ultimately turn and cover the whole room so that nobody gets away. 
This idea of service is that we hold hands together so that nobody gets away. In the blob, nobody's more important than anybody else. The goal is that nobody gets away. As if we even could get away from God. No, I don't mean after we die. I mean no one gets away from God's presence even in the whirlwind while we're alive. Instead of us sitting at the top with someone at our right and left because we're important, maybe this is the image of the important people <laughs> standing at the bottom, shoving as many people as they can closer and closer and closer to larger life, even if the people don't want to be shoved. Maybe that's the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced that perfected his love because it really just at that point wasn't about himself anymore. It was about other people. And that word, interestingly enough, Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And righteousness doesn't mean piety, it means justice. Jesus became the king of justice because in the middle of his own pain, in the middle of other people rejecting his greater way, he kept pushing. And maybe that's the pill God invites us to take today.